listening to a recent sermon from Covenant Church. For more information or other sermons like this one, you can find us at covenantchurchonline.com. And now with a message from our latest series, The Madness of King Saul, here is our pastor, Travis Davenport. So we definitely had a pretty big life change in our home this past week, but something happened a couple days prior to us going to the hospital um, that I wanted to share with you uh, today. Uh, We actually had two hospital visits in the past week or so, and the story goes like this. Uh, I took my my kids, Noah, who was was seven today, and I took uh, Estella, who who is 16, Actually, she's three. Um, <laughs> seems like she's 16. And, uh, and yeah, so I took them down to the park, and I took Judah as well. He's 19 months old. And uh, yeah, so we're playing. We're pushing them on the swings. We were there for about an hour, hour and a half or whatever and playing. And I said, okay, guys, it's time to go home. And, and as always, oh, Dad, let's, you know, we don't want to go home. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to put Judah in the van, and uh, you guys can play for two or three more minutes. And then when I honk the horn, you guys come to me. Now, now, just keep in mind, I'm not a horrible parent. Like, the van is not like a mile away from the playground. It's right in front of it, okay? Child services. Thank you. All right. And, uh, although you may call them after this story. And, um, and so I'm putting Judah into the van. I'm strapping him in, buckling. And all of a sudden, I hear this blood-curdling scream. And if you're a parent with children, you know they're different kind of screams, right? You know the fake scream, like, yeah, you're not really crying. That's fake. I'm calling it, right? You know the I'm hungry scream. You know the I just got hit in the eye scream, right? You know the, uh, you know, whatever. I'm scared scream. There's different types of screams. You'll get that as you have kids. Um, this was one that I hadn't heard before, and it freaked me out. And let me ask, so I turn around, and this is what I saw. I saw my son, Noah, laying on the ground, holding his head, and I saw my, my daughter, Stella, holding her head, and her head was just drenched with blood. And her hair looked like someone had dumped Kool-Aid all over her hair. That's, and it took me a second to recognize. And I ran over and I picked her up and said, what happened? What happened? What happened? What happened? She said, my head, my head. And she's just screaming and crying. So I take her over to the van. I'm like, oh, my gosh, what is going on? I can't find any, anything, you know, that's, that's on her. And, and Noah comes over. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm like, what did you do? What? You better tell me you're about to lose an arm. You know, what did you do to my baby girl, Noah, you know? And uh, he's like, Dad, I I just picked up a rock and threw it up into the air. (laughs) All right. So now I know what I'm looking for. So I look at her head. I'm looking for like a dent. I'm looking for whatever. And sure enough, there's a, a big gash in her, in her head that's just bleeding and bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. And so I put them both into the car and... And I, and I called my wife, and, who is at this point very, very, very pregnant and, uh, and doesn't need this to be happening. And I said, hey, I think that we have to take, I have to take Stella to the, to the ER. Her head is, is uh, well, I'll just tell you when I get home. And she said, you can't do that to me. And I just hung up. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> In hindsight, not a good idea. She almost dropped two babies in that one moment, okay? I'm just... Not a good idea. So I get home. My wife's standing there. What's going on? What's going on? And and get this picture. I carry in my daughter in my arms. Like total hero moment for me as a dad. I'm like, okay, this is awful. This is kind of awesome. Like I'm carrying in my daughter, right? And she's just like crying. But my wife sees her little three-year-old with just like blood all over her. 
And so we take her inside, and we find this cut. So we're like, yeah, we need to go take her to the ER. Nothing serious. It's just a gash, and she might have to get some stitches. So meanwhile, my son Noah, okay, is just in the background crying, right, because he feels so awful about what he did. And he's, I don't know, actually, I got to go back on that. I don't know if, if he's crying because he felt bad for what he did or if he's crying because he knows what's about to happen to him. I don't know in hindsight which one that was. And, but we made the, the decision. I said, you know, to my wife, we had to take Stella. It's like 930 at night. Instead of disciplining Noah for this, I'm going to take him with me to the ER and let him watch what they have to do with a staple gun to his sister's head. And so I took him with me, and we sat there, and the doctors came in, and everyone, now what happened, what happened? And Noah said, I threw a rock in the air, you know. Um, <laughs> that's not the point of the story, though. You haven't heard it yet. The point of the story is we get in the van. My daughter's got an ice pack on her head. My son's sitting in the back seat. And this is the conversation, and this is it. This is the conversation that took place between a 3-year-old and a 7-year-old. Are you ready? They're sitting in the back seat. I'm pulling out. And I hear this, my son Noah, between kind of like sobs and tears, Stella, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry, I'm, I'm so sorry. And this is what my three-year-old daughter said. <sighs> Noah, you know that I love you. You know that I forgive you. But I've got to be honest, I'm just very disappointed in some of the choices you made today. <laughs> True story. I'm looking in the rearview mirror like, did that just happen? That's the funniest thing I've ever heard. How old are you, you know? And I turn around and look in the mirror, and Noah just drops his head in shame. <laughs> he just got owned by a three-year-old. Furthermore, we get to the hospital, and we, we check in. We do all the stuff that we got to do. And uh, you've got to know my daughter to get this, probably. But um, <coughs> it's funny to me. We're laying there on the, on, the, on the hospital bed. She's laying there, and the doctor's going to come over and put some staples in her head and, and all this kind of stuff. And one of the nurses is just there for moral support, right? So one of the nurses is just over there, like, rubbing her leg, like, oh, sweetie, it's okay. Is it, did you put Kool-Aid in your hair? And she just, like, looks up at her like, fool, you know this ain't Kool-Aid. You know what I mean? <laughs> what am I here for? What are you talking about? You know what I'm saying? She's rubbing her head. And then she's like, so what's your favorite color, sweetie? And she just doesn't say anything. She says, what's your favorite kind of animal? And she just puts her hands, like, up over her face like this. And I'm just watching this happen. And so the nurse looks at her and she says, do you not want to talk right now? I kid you not, second amazing statement of the night from a three-year-old girl. She puts her hands over and then she just puts her hands out like this. And she goes, I don't mean to offend anyone. I just don't want to talk to anybody right now. <laughs> You're three years old. So I was able to have this amazing conversation with my son afterwards where I was able to tell, where I was able to tell him, Noah, <clears throat> you deciding to throw a rock up into the air was a bad decision. And there are decisions that you can make in life, good or bad, but every decision has consequences. Every decision, no matter if it's a small decision or a big decision, a good decision or a bad decision, a small good decision, you get the point, Every decision that we make has consequences. Good decisions create good consequences. Consequences, Bad decisions create bad consequences. And here's the point. Most people would say, yeah, 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 I agree with that. Yeah, I completely get that. But if we're honest, we only believe it kind of. We only, we only kind of believe it. Just, just 
Just a little bit. Just, just a little bit. We just only kind of believe it. Think about it. We would all probably agree that if today you, you left church and went and had, and you're married, and you went and had an affair, just openly had an affair, that would immediately have some <laughs> very big lasting ramifications and consequences to your marriage, right? And to your family. We would all agree that, I hope, right? Yes? Okay, okay you scared me for a moment there. Okay, good. That would have some very large and immediate consequences. But, on the other hand, looking at something that we shouldn't be looking at maybe on our lunch break, looking at something, maybe looking at pornography during our lunch break when nobody catches us, no one else sees us. That's, that's a decision, but that's not really a, a big deal, right? Uh, we, don't, we don't consider that like a, a big decision, and, and it doesn't give us immediate consequences or, or very large consequences, or maybe it doesn't give us any consequences. I don't know. Or how about this? Let's raise the stakes a little bit. We would all probably agree that if you go out into the middle of the street and murder somebody in cold blood, that's a bad thing, right? Yes? You guys are really kind of scaring me <laughs> today. Affair, murder, you're just like, yeah, no big deal, man. It's a big deal. Well, we, we, would, we would agree that you would, if you did this, op- I mean, you would go to jail. You might even get the death penalty. Immediate uh, consequences, large consequences for this large decision. But to contrast that, when you're sitting in traffic and you're driving, somebody cuts you off and you just show them a couple fingers, right? Or just maybe one, right? The specific one. Um, that's not really a big deal. That's not really a big decision. And, and it probably doesn't have any, any big consequences either. In fact, uh, it kind of feels good. Amen? Bunch of sinners. All right. You, get what I'm, you see what I'm getting at? This is the game that we play with ourselves. This is the game that we play. We decide to do a thing or we decide not to do a thing based on the consequences that we will reap from doing that thing. We play this game with ourselves. And not just the consequences, but, but we also play the game based on the immediacy of which the consequences will be received by us. This is why Burger King is in business. You realize that, right? This is why Burger King can release the quadruple bacon double cheeseburger and we will whistle and cheer for it. When that might as well be a loaded gun. Literally. But this is how they get away with it. Because if you eat that today, it's not going to kill you. It's going to be a delicious treat that you're going to savor and have a good time with. Right? But if you were to eat that burger, that if you can call it that, if you were to eat that, every day of your life, it will kill you. I mean, hands down, if you were to eat a quadruple Whopper with bacon and cheese every day for your life, you will clog your arteries. You will have the Burger King popping up out of your pores. I mean, you will have a heart attack and you will die. And we all get that, correct? It will kill us, but it will kill us someday. So it's not a big deal now. It's, it's not a big deal today. And we don't think about it because it's a small decision, seemingly small decision, to eat a burger. You guys tracking with me? Yeah? This is the point that I'm trying to make. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is what we call the principle of compound decisions. The principle of compound decisions. If you're taking notes, it says this. The, the principle of compound decisions states that every decision we make, good or bad, compounds over time, shaping 
the outcome of our life. Let me just say that one more time. Every decision we make, good or bad, compounds over time, shaping the outcome of our life. And, and to be honest with you, no, nowhere is it more clear in Scripture than in the life of this mad king, Saul. No more, I, I don't think you can really see it any more clearly, the compound decision, the principle of compound decisions than in the life of Saul. These seemingly small decisions that he made that over time led him to, to his final destination, which we're going to talk about today. In fact, let's, let's take a look at, just from a bird's eye point of view, let's take a look at some of the decisions that helped shape the outcome of Saul's life. Are you with me? Are you with me? A quiet church is a dead church. I think we're alive. Amen? Yes? Are we alive? All right. I got an hour of sleep last night. I'm going to need you to help me. All right. Here we go. Go over to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 13. I'm just going to read some, some, quick, some quick portions of Scripture here and then explain them. 1 Samuel chapter 13, starting in verse 8. It says this, Now Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. Saul, right here, chooses to make a sacrifice that he was not supposed to make, as we talked about in week one, out of pride. I can make that sacrifice. I don't have to wait for uh, Samuel. I don't have to wait for the prophet of God. I can make that sacrifice. Error. Number one, jump over to 1 Samuel 15, verse 3. This is God speaking. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Jump over to verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword, but Saul and the people spared Agag. Supposed to kill him, he spared him. But not only him, but also the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was, all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. God told Saul, I want you to take the city, kill everything. 100%. The king, the, the, the animals, everything. But Saul, out of arrogance... Does what? He keeps the king alive and all the good food, all the good livestock, keeps it alive. Now, this is, this is secondary. It's kind of a rabbit trail, but I just have to share this too. This is one of the reasons that the Bible is just so awesome. Can I just share this with you real quick? Pastor David hit on it last week. By the way, awesome job from our Sea Life pastor last week sharing the word of God. And he hit on this truth. And I wanted to, definitely, and I wanted to share it again because it's just awesome. Here we go. Look at verse 32. Samuel is an old man, by the way. Samuel is like, when you picture an old prophet, that's Samuel. His beard is probably down to his knees. He's got a cane. He's got like a long robe, I guess. And, 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 and so Samuel goes to King Saul, and he's like, why did you not kill the king? And Saul's like, well, because this and this and this. And Samuel's like, no, God told you to. And look at this, verse 32. This is why it's awesome. Then Samuel said, Samuel, the old man. Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him. What's that word? Cheerfully. Cheerfully. Here's this king that was a killer king. 
And his nation had been destroyed, but he was spared. And so now the prophet of God is calling for him. So he's like, yeah, sure. And he just, you see him like whistling, you know, walking off. And this is, you know, hey, what else is going to, you know, I got spared today. This is great. He cheerfully, Agag said, surely the bitterness, bitterness, bitterness. <laughs> we can edit that one out. Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, he didn't even listen to him. Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel, this is scripture, hacked Agag to pieces. Bible's awesome. All right, here we go. First Samuel chapter 19. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all the servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. Here we see uh, Saul begin his quest to kill David out of jealousy and insecurity. David was the heir to the throne that God had chosen. David was the giant slayer. David, this is the same David who's the King David, um, who's one of the uh, kings where God says, he's a man after my own heart. Saul seeks to destroy him. Also a bad decision. Now, two more. First Samuel chapter 28. This is just a, a peek at Saul's life. These small decisions that he's making over time. Samuel chapter 28, verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. Yes, that means what you think it means, Harry Potter fans. It does. <laughs> Witches and uh, people that conjure up demons and things like this. Verse 4. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped to Shanem. And Saul gathered all Israel and encamped in Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servant, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium or a witch, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to her, Behold, there is a medium in Endor. Verse 8 says, So Saul disguised himself and put on the garments and went he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night and said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for whomever I shall name to you. Saul, in a very bad decision, chooses to go and consult a witch um, who, who literally conjures up spirits and, and whatnot. He does this out of fear and anxiety. These are the reasons he makes these choices, fear and anxiety. And finally, finally, 1 Samuel chapter 31, starting verse 1. Let's see where these... These decisions have compounded and left Saul. <clears throat> now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him. And he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest... These uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be the guy that kills the king either. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. Verse 5. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his own sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, 
They abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols to their people. Saul chooses to take his own life out of fear and hopelessness. All these decisions added up, and it left Saul in a place where he was filled with anxiety, filled with fear, filled with, with anger, filled with, fueled and filled with hopelessness. And here's the thing. Up to taking his own life, none of these decisions in and of themselves would have necessarily been deal breakers to God. You understand that? At any point, Saul probably could have come back to God, but he didn't. Instead, he continued to make poor decisions. He continued to make adverse decisions than what God had told him to do. And Saul was left feeling hopeless, alone, and fearful. And, j- and just for the record, this is where our adversary, you do know that we have an adversary. Yes? Yes? Yeah. Scripture says that we have an adversary who's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour and so this adversary walks around, and he's looking for, for, the, the, for the hopeless. He's looking for people who are filled with anxiety. He's looking for people who, who are filled with fear. Oh, what's going to happen next? Oh, that can't happen. I'm going to snap. You have a lion chasing you. I don't know if you know about lions, but lions lie in wait. Male lions lie in wait till the other lions have taken down the prey. And when that prey is at their most vulnerable, a male lion will come in, roar very loud, and jump on the prey and take it down, giving it the final blow oftentimes. This is what our enemy wants to do to you. This is where our adversary wants us, vulnerable, hopeless, and alone. The truth is, our decisions compound over time and shape the outcome of our lives. Now, this sounds like a dire thing, right? Yes? I mean, this sounds like a really bad thing, and and it is, um, the fact that all of our decisions add up over time and shape our lives. But the truth is this. The principle of compound decisions is always at work. It's always working. You realize that, right? It's always at work, and it can work for you just as much as it work, can work against you. Are you feeling me? It can work for you just as much as it can work against you. Turn to your neighbor and say, for me, not against me. Now turn to your other neighbor and say what he said. Good, there we go. All right. <laughs> it can work for you as much as it can work against you because the principle of compounding decisions applies to small, good decisions. Just as much as it applies to large, bad decisions. Here's an example. I have, all the t- I have people all the time say, I really want to grow my relationship with Christ. I say, fantastic. What are you doing to do that? Nothing. Okay, well then, nothing's probably going to happen, right? I say, well, what do I do? What do I do? I just, I just you know, I was really excited and I jumped in. I tried to re- read like, you know, I started in Genesis from the beginning and I made it all the way to Leviticus. And I was like, ah, like, oh, that, that's a bad idea. Don't do that, right? Instead... Why don't you do this? Why don't you do this? Why don't you uh, make a commitment to read one chapter a day from Scripture? And just do that. Just read one chapter a day from Scripture and then pray about it. 
That's it. And if you just did that one small thing every day, then over the course of just a few months, you would have read dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of books from the Bible. And you would have grown immeasurably. You would have grown a lot. Um, or how about this? If you want to strengthen your marriage, determine that every day you're going to spend five minutes in prayer with your wife or your husband. Like that. Just, well, that doesn't seem like enough. Instead, I'm going to make all these lofty goals and set all these things and change my expectations and shift my boundaries. And then, good, you're going to do that for maybe 11 days. And then you're going to get frustrated and not do anything. And then your wife's really going to hate you. Honey, I'm going to clean out the car every day. When I come home, I'm here 100%. I'm going to turn off my phone. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to watch any more TV. Day three, you're sitting there checking the internet. The hose for the car is outside, not even plugged in, watching Shark Week. It's not going to go well for you. Instead, let's just make some small decisions. Let's just pray with each other for five minutes. Just five minutes. Every day. If you do that over the course of this year, you will have prayed with each other for over 30 hours. Realize that? 30.4 hours you have spent in prayer together. Speaking of cars, if you want a clean vehicle, this is my wife's love language, by the way. If you want a clean vehicle, then determine that every time you get into a car, you kick your feet off. Literally, just dust your feet off and then get in the car. Specialists tell us certain dusty, you know, shoe and vehicle specialists tell us this will save you hours over the course of your life. But here's the fact. I can tell you all that stuff. I can tell you, uh, but, but, but you probably won't do it. It's easy to start a thing. It's hard to finish a thing, isn't it? That's, this is why gyms make so much money off of people at the beginning of the new year. If I were to ask you right now, by the way, hey, man, how's your New Year's resolution going? It's almost July. How's it going? You would literally probably just hang your head in shame. I quit after five days. Five days in January. January 5th, I quit my New Year's resolution. Why is that? Because we try to make these huge, life-altering, changing decisions. Instead, just make small Decisions that will compound over time, shaping the outcome of your life. Are you with me? Do you hear me? Are you, am I preaching to you? Okay. Okay. Um, and a lot of people, they just, you know, they think, oh, I've got to stay motivated. I've got to do this. I've got to do this, this. And, and then you ask them, like, well, if this would have happened, but this took place, and but this, and if this. And as my grandpa would say, if ifs and buts were candy and nuts, we'd all be happy at Christmas. And I honestly have no idea what he was talking about. Because if I got candy and nuts at Christmas, I'd be pretty ticked. I'm just going to be honest with you. We've all got excuses. We've all got them. The point isn't that. The point is the fact that making good small decisions over time will change your life. And, it, and you could recognize that as the answer. But that answer won't matter to you. That, ma that answer won't matter for you unless you're willing to put into play that answer. Right? Unless you're willing to do it. Unless you're willing to do that thing that you're supposed to, to do. The answer to the, the question won't even matter. And the problem with that in our generation is that we have a generation of Veruca Salts. You know what I'm talking about? Another Willy Wonka analogy. I'm sorry. Veruca Salt says, I want the whole world and I want it now. We live in a culture, and back me up if you agree with this, we live in a culture of immediate gratification. Yes? 
We live in a culture that says, I want it now. This is what I must have. I'm good enough. I deserve it. I deserve the best. Right? That's what they say. They have that little swagger when they say it too. You know what I'm saying? I deserve the best. Right? And you're like, baby, I only got this much money. Well, you don't deserve me. You know what I'm saying? I've never heard that before. And so we're, we're a generation of, of, of Twitter feeds and Facebook statuses, and, and we want up-to-the-minute news, and we want it now. we got cell phones that literally, I've talked about this before, we got cell phones that if, if they don't connect with somebody on the other side of the world in under 25 seconds, we become irate. Think about the lunacy of that. Oh, yeah, I called my friend in China the other day. Oh, yeah, how was he? I don't know. It took me like 40 seconds for him to pick up. Wow. It, like a while ago, it would have taken you 25 years to contact him. But yeah, 40 seconds, I can see the frustration, right? We, we're, we're driving in our car. We're sitting in traffic. We pull up a YouTube video in traffic. I don't do this. I saw other people do it. And, uh, and that little line comes around. You're like, oh, great. I'm going to wait here forever, right? This thing's going to buffer. I'm in the middle of the desert in Arizona, and I can't even watch a YouTube video. What is wrong with you? Just relax. Like, we are a culture of immediate gratification. Yeah, I started this, uh, I went ahead and bought P90X. And, uh, yeah, I did 90 minutes of it. I didn't feel any different, really. Still as fat as I was before. You gotta stick with it. Immediate gratification. And, and to be honest with you, this is why we have a generation that's strapped with debt. We have parents who work their entire lives, consistent jobs in factories and business and farming and agriculture, and they work their butts off to have what they have. And we grow up and we're like, well, I deserve that now. I'm 18. We don't have the money for it, but that doesn't matter. We'll charge it, and it will sink us, and it will break our children's backs, and it will ruin our marriages. But it doesn't matter because we need just a little bit bigger of a TV. Compounding. Decisions, compounding decisions. So here's the question. What's the answer to this? What, what is the answer? It depends on who you ask. If you ask certain people, they'll say, well, you just need to shift your motivation. You need to shift your attitude. You have a positive attitude. You need to have a better attitude. You, you just need to try harder. You need to, you need to work harder. You need to, you need to be better. Well, here's the truth. There has to be something that precedes our attitudes and actions, Right? There must be something that proceeds our attitudes and actions. I mean, because it can't just be about feelings. Can it? Feelings change. Like, feelings really change. I used to be in love. I'm going to share this with you. It's a very intimate thing I'm going to share with you. Let you know my life. And I thought that I had found the love of my life. His name was Teddy Ruxpin. If you know Teddy Ruxpin or not, to me, he was as real of a friend as it came. And I love Teddy Ruxpin. He would read stories to me. He had to put a tape in his back. That was a little freaky. But apart from that, Teddy Ruxpin, if, if this is like a cultural thing that you're not getting, just hang tight, okay? Because this is personal to me. And Teddy Ruxpin, I was in love. But my feel, I'm not in love with Teddy Ruxpin anymore. I mean, we still talk every once in a while. But I mean, I'm just like, <laughs> I'm feeling, our feelings are fickle. Our, fe- our feelings change. Eat Chipotle one day. You, you feel different after you ate that burrito than beforehand because it weighs four and a half pounds. I mean, you just weigh, you feel differently. You weigh differently too, but they, our feelings are different. Our emotions shift and they change. So is that what we're supposed to trust? 
Is that how we fuel and propel our lives? By our feelings? By our emotions? There's got to be something else. Jesus Christ gives us the answer in Matthew 5, verse 5. Listen to this verse. It says, blessed are the what? Oh, come on. Don't you have to be so meek about it. Blessed are the for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, what does Jesus mean by this verse? What is a meek individual? Usually when, I, when we think of a meek individual, we think of a weak individual. But the opposite is true. A meek person isn't a weak person. A meek person is someone who knows whose they are. A meek person is someone who knows who's there. Notice that I didn't say a meek person is someone who knows who they are, but it is somebody who knows whose they are because you cannot know who you are until you know whose you are. Now that'll preach. Because you truly, you, how do you know who you are until you know whose you are? You can't. But most of us try and stop it. Like, what do I want to do? What's my giftedness? What's my talent? What's my passion? What's my purpose? And all that's good, and that's necessary, and that's important. But you can't know any of those things. You cannot know your purpose. You cannot know who you are until you know whose you are. You must determine whose you are. And this is why we must be rooted in God. This is why, church, we must find our identity from Jesus Christ, from God. Another way to say it would be this. We must pull our identity completely from God and God alone. Am I preaching to you this morning? Amen. From God and God alone. No one and nothing else. When we find our identity in God and God alone, we begin to see ourselves as God sees us. We begin to see ourselves as God sees us, and God's view of us is greater than any view that we could have for ourselves. Do you, know that? Do you know that this morning? God's view of us is greater than any view that we could have of ourselves. Remember Saul? When Saul saw himself as a failure, God saw a king. Saul looked at himself in the mirror and saw a failed donkey chaser. And God saw a king. If Saul would have just leaned into whose he was rather than leaning into who he saw himself as, then he would have been one of the greatest kings of all time. But Saul started making decisions out of fear. Saul started making decisions out of insecurity. Saul started making decisions out of his anxieties and, and his anger and his jealousy inside of who he was. And he failed. And it led him to an inevitable death. Because that is where sin leads you. Scripture tells us that. It says that sin gives birth, and eventually that birth dies inside of you. Sin, sin's end is inevitably death. It's death. Psalm chapter 51, verse 5 tells us that we are born sinners, that we are totally depraved, we are not good which means our attitudes in and of themselves are no good. Now get, get this, get this. 51.5, Psalm 51.5, that, that we literally are no good. There's nothing good. We're born sinners, which means our attitudes are not good. Our motivations are not good. Our actions necessarily are not good. Our mindsets are evil. Our actions are self-serving. We, in and of ourselves, 
cannot trust who we are. Amen? We cannot trust ourselves. Scripture tells us even our best works are like filthy, bloody rags to God. Because why? Because everything we do is laced with some type of an agenda. Even us showing up to church this morning, on some level, it's laced with some type of sin. We can't help it. We were born sinners. This is why we need Jesus. This is why it blows me away when I talk to people about decisions in their life and, and they just say, well, I'm just going to feel it out. I'm just, I'm just going oh, to feel it out. I'm just going to wait and feel it out. I'm talking to people who want to get married. One of the first questions I ask, why do you want to get married? A lot of times people say, well, we just feel like we're in love. Okay, that's not a good reason. 53% of America gets married because they're, they're, they're like, we feel like we're in love. 53% of America gets divorced. So apparently, being in love or feeling like you're in love isn't enough. And yet we decide to trust our emotions. We decide to trust our feelings. Listen, your emotions are fickle. Your emotions can change from day to day. Are, are you hearing me? Are you with me? You must root yourself in an absolute you must root yourself in the truth. Root yourself in a God that will never waver. Hebrews 13, chapter 8 says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? He will never change, which means God will never change. He will never sway in his love and his view that he has of you. Listen to me. Your spouse may have given up on you, but I want you to know that God never has changed. He's never given up on you. Your family, they may have given up on you. I want you to know God still has not given up on you. He's not gone anywhere. Your boss may have fired you. I want you to know God hasn't changed. He hasn't given up on you. Your kids, they may have give, might have given up on you. Your God has not given up on you. He has not left. He has not wavered. He has not swayed. Maybe even this morning you've given up on yourself, which is where Saul found himself. He gave up on himself. I want you to know that God has never given up on you. Amen? Church. Amen? He's never swayed. He's never moved. And, and he still believes. He still believes in you. He still believes that. And he sees you just as, as he created you. Full of potential. Full of life. Full of possibilities. Full of promise. Full of purpose. That's you. That's you. Are you getting this? Are you grasping this? This is life changing. This is life altering. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And it takes you believing in a God who believes in you if you want to achieve the impossible. A lot of people want to achieve the impossible. They want to achieve great things, but they're unwilling to believe in a God that will believe in them. Rather, they'd rather just believe in themselves. Well, I can do it. I can do it. You can't do the impossible. Who, who do you think you are? It's impossible for a reason. That means it's not possible. Therefore, you cannot do it. But don't you know we serve a God who lives in the realm of impossibility. We serve a God that is greater than time. We serve a God who is never created, who always was, who always will be. The scriptures tell us that he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the king, the warrior, the prince of peace, the sovereign God who will return. He is outside of us. He is bigger than anything we could imagine. And yet he believes in you. And he 
sits down on his throne. He looks down. And he says, man, I just wish that guy would get it together. He's got so much potential. He's got so much purpose. He's got so much promise. If he would just lean into me, I would bless him in ways he could never even believe. And yet here we are struggling, walking in our day. Everything's fine. Not feeling good today. Guess it's going to be a downer. <laughs> I mean, for real? You've got the God of heaven staring down saying, go, man, you can do it. I believe in you. I put that in you. And we're like, I feel a little car sick today. I think I'm just going to go home. Right? See the difference? How ridiculous are we? How ridiculous is that? <laughs> uh, with God, all things are possible. Amen? Philippians chapter 4, verse 13 says that we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Not some things, not a couple things, not a few things. My scripture says that we can do all things through God who gives us strength. You may not know the plan, but that doesn't matter. We've got a God who does. Jeremiah 29, 11 says that God has plans to prosper you, not to put you through misery, not for plans of destruction, but rather he's got plans for a future and a hope for you. Ephesians tells us that God is able to do immeasurably more. Help me, church. He's able to do immeasurably more than anything we could even ask, dream, or imagine because of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's doing in our church. God is not for you. God is for you. He's not against you. God is near. He's not far away. God is beside you. He hasn't left you. God is with you every single step of your way. Church, it's time, literally, that we stand up, that we divorce our feelings, and that we marry ourselves to an identity that is rooted in whose we are, rather than the limiting of ourselves by letting insecurities, anxieties, fears, and depression rule and run the outcome of our lives. Amen. It's over. It's over. And when you identify and marry yourselves to Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter who you are, it matters whose you are. And you won't know who you are until you know whose you are. But once you know whose you are, who you are changes. Everything about you changes. You become a meek individual. That's why you can have somebody who walks up to a situation that is just completely atrocious, and they just dust it off their shoulder. That's a meek individual. How do I live like that? you got to know whose you are. You've got to know whose you are. Everybody wants to know. Everybody wants to be like that person. And they try to shortcut it. You know what I'm saying? We want to live the Ferrari life. We, we want to get there fast. We want to go. We want to go straight up to the top. Really fast. Really fast. Really fast. That's, you know what? That's ridiculous. That's a roller coaster. You ever lived that life before? You ever met somebody who one day they're way up. Oh, life is great. Everything's fantastic. And then the next day they're like, oh. I just am about to die. <laughs> wow, yesterday I thought it was a great, yesterday was great, today's just, just awful, right? Okay, man, you know, want some coffee? No, no, I, I couldn't even drink coffee, I'm just so upset right now, I just got to Okay, then the next, you know, you seem like a week later, man, I've really been praying for you, how are you doing? Oh, man, gosh, things couldn't be better. Everything's fantastic, my life is fantastic. What, is, you're going to die. Your heart is literally going to jump out of your throat and punch you in the face. I mean, that's literally what you are doing to yourself. You are not created to live a roller coaster life. You are not created to be a Ferrari. You were created to be a tank. You know that? You know how a tank rolls? No, literally. Do you know how a tank rolls? Like this. That's how it does. It just continues to gain ground. It's not fast. 
It ain't sexy. It is manly. It's, it's a beautiful thing, really. But the fact of the matter is it's got enough, it's got enough water. It's got enough fuel. It's got enough armor for the entire journey. And it just keeps rolling. It just keeps rolling. Now, if you were to take a tank and a Ferrari and put them up against each other and say, climb up that mountain, a Ferrari might, I mean, if there's a road, it might it'd just totally take off and beat it, right? But if you took that tank and you said, all right, now over the course of the next 45 to 50 years, let's see who gets, you know, the farthest. This tank is just going to continue rolling, not stopping. There's going to be good days. There's going to be bad days. Good things that happen, bad things that happen. But either way, a tank, it's, it's going to feel it, but it's not going to react too much to it. It's a tank. It rolls, it rolls over obstacles. It rolls over issues. But a Ferrari, don't hit one divot or your whole tire is gone. And the front of it, because it's made out of like, construction paper <laughs> it's like a paper mache vehicle this seems safe you know it will just be completely destroyed not only that but you're gonna run out of gas like that this thing goes zero to 60 in you know 2.5 seconds fantastic you're gonna be out of gas in 9.4 seconds <laughs> not a tank though a Ferrari is not a, it's, it's gonna get there it's gonna go fast but it's gonna burn out and then it's gonna roll all the way Back down. A tank has got fuel for the journey. It just keeps on going. What can you do to a meek individual? What can you say to somebody who knows whose they are? There's nothing that this world can do to you. This world cannot touch you. Your enemy cannot even come against you because you are a tank and you roll over your circumstances. You roll over your situations. You roll over your problems knowing that there's going to be issues but that you serve a God who is greater than any issue or any problem that you could have. We need to live the tank life, the tank life. And when we live this way, we shall inherit the earth. We shall be meek individuals. Thanks for listening to this recent sermon from our series, The Madness of King Saul at Covenant Church. If you've made any type of decision today after hearing this message, we'd love to hear your story. Please take a moment to write to us at mystory@covenantchurchonline.com. Then check back each week for more exciting and impactful sermon audio just like this.